0: Good to see you, Uh, apparently God is still alive, I'm encouraged to read the media, you would think that God is uh, yesterday and not today. You know, there's a reason that when God appeared unto Moses and Moses asked him his name, he said, I am, meaning I am always present tense in your life. I am everything you need, Moses, I am everything you need. And that's a great reminder for us today. When we sing these great songs about the name of Jesus, I'm reminded of that scripture in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that day may come today in your life. It may have come years ago. It may come tomorrow. But it will come for every single person. Lost and saved, they will have to confess that Jesus is Lord. But we want to do it now while we're alive, amen? Amen. All right, God bless you. You know, headlines always intrigue me, especially around Easter. People seem to think this is a great time at Passover or Easter to attack the message of the kingdom of God. But don't be shocked by that, that's not new. This is what's been going on since the beginning of time where God's very entrance into the life of man brought about a kickback from the enemy. One headline in the New York Times, one of those conservative newspapers we find, (laughs) it says, in time of war, making reference to what's happening in Ukraine, I propose we give up God. And this is written by a conservative Jewish man in New York, Who just felt like God causes all the wars and God's the problem? If we just eliminate God, then everything will be well. Well, that's been said before. In fact, uh, the atheist Richard Dawkins, who's probably the best known atheist, uh, he said this. He said, getting rid of God would make the world less moral. While he doesn't believe in God, he does believe that the God concept helps us behave better. Now, what he doesn't really realize is that truth can be absolute. And what do I mean by that? That means there has to be a standard by which everything else is judged. And we believe that is the Bible, the word of God, that God has revealed himself, and that is truth. It's not a truth or one of many truths. It is the truth that we got our life by. In fact, our whole nation was built around the idea of the Old Testament law. And we have clarity because we say some things are right and some things are wrong. Have you ever noticed that even those who deny God and live an immoral life can be offended when an actor slaps another actor? (laughs) Why would it matter? If there's no right and there's no, no wrong, it should be acceptable. And yet there's something in all of us that says there is right and there is wrong. There is truth and there is error. God has made us that way. God made you that way with a conscience and with a capacity to know him. And then when you hear about God or God's word comes to you, even if you don't believe, you go, well, that does kind of make sense. Now, whether you accept God, believe God, follow God, that's your choice. But you see, what Dawkins was saying is that without a God concept, we have a license to sin. He also said, he referred to God or the God concept as actually a divine spy camera. That if you know you're being watched, you act better. We've always said the first rule of safe driving is a policeman on the corner. We all slow down when we see the police. Well, God for Dawkins is like that. But you see, there's something else. When there is no God, there is no purpose. If you're just a biological element of chance that just happened, to come to earth and just happen to be born here and just happen to pull yourself out of the primeval sludge and your tail fell off your fins dropped off and now you're walking about a human being what a miracle <laughs> i don't know how anyone can say that they don't believe in miracles that sounds like a miracle to me people always want to attack they say well the red sea it wasn't really the red sea that moses crossed it was the reed sea which is a greater miracle, that means all those Egyptians drowned in four inches of water. <laughs> Richard Dawkins, let me go back to him because I want, to, I want you to see something here about the mindset that says no God or no God for me. See, you can say there is a God but not, but not for me. Dawkins said this, God almost certainly does not exist. Now, I don't know if that strikes you funny But for an atheist to say, almost certainly, you would think a good atheist would say God does not exist, period. He went on to say this, and this is in his book, The God Delusion. He said, God, though technically, uh, not technically disprovable, is very, very improbable indeed. Improbable. Isn't that interesting? Well, this has been said and tried before. In fact, in 1966, Time Magazine ran this cover and asked the question, is God Dead. This actually came from a philosopher, a German philosopher named Nietzsche. And Nietzsche basically said, you know, there's no black or white, there's no truth or error. Everything is gray. Whatever you want to believe is just fine. Sound familiar? Sound like bumper stickers that say, Can't we just coexist? I'm trying to figure all those out. Almost getting a wreck, trying to figure what are all what's that? that? What is that? What is that? But what Nietzsche said, now Nietzsche did not believe in God, but what he did say was that self-centered man killed God, or the God concept. Now, ultimately, we say, well, God can't die, right? And yet, didn't God die on the cross? You see, God took on human flesh, was born in the likeness of men, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Can you put your hands together and give glory to God for that? One of my favorite preachers who's now gone and, uh, to be with the Lord. I had many conversations on the phone with him and loved his preaching. He was from the South. I'm going to get into that Southern mode if you don't mind. I grew up a little bit in Georgia, a little bit in Louisiana. We, we pastored, and, and uh, so sometimes it comes back naturally. But S.M. Lockridge said If God is dead, then who assassinated him? If he is dead, what coroner was called to examine the deceased? Who signed the death certificate? who was so well acquainted with a deceased that they could identify the deceased? And what obituary column did you find his name listed? And then the last question I love the most, and why was I not notified? I am the next of kin. Amen. Henry Morris said this about the resurrection. A lot of people say, well, don't you just think that this whole idea of Christianity and resurrection, don't you think that's for people that are uneducated or maybe children and, or maybe grandmas? Just somebody else, not me. Well, Henry Morris is a pretty smart guy, and he said this, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. You see, the Bible says that, that if Christ had not died and risen from the dead, then we have no life, and we are people most to be pitied. He went on to say, if the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did not take place, then Christ is God, and the Christian faith is absolute truth. You see, everything we believe as Christians revolves around one event, and that is the resurrection. Disprove the resurrection, Christianity is out the door. It's worthless. Just walk away because it's not true. Now, Jesus understood what was gonna happen. Remember, as he walked with his disciples, he taught them along the way, and he gave them instructions, and he he said, I'm going to give you a promise, and here's the first one, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and look at this, and raised from the dead. Now, can you imagine, you're, you've left home, you've left job, you've left everything, you're one of the 12 disciples, and you have this idea that this is King Jesus, and King Jesus is going to crush the Roman Empire, gonna establish a new kingdom on the throne of his father, David. He's gonna rule and reign with righteousness, and all of a sudden, he starts talking about dying. And then he starts talking about rising from the dead. Well, it's one thing, everybody can relate to dying, but now raising from the dead, I mean, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead, but I believe this one was raised from the dead, amen? And so now, all of a sudden, all their hope, they're kind of struggling, but look, he goes on to say it again, Luke chapter nine and verse 22. The son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes be killed, and raised up on the third day. Very specifically, not just raised, but on the third day. You see, it was common in that day to believe that if someone wasn't dead at least three days, that they sometimes came back to life. But after three days, they said, no, it's too late. He can't just wake up. All right? Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 20. 18 and 19 rather, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priest, to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And the third day he will rise again. Now you notice this passage adds a little bit more into it. It says here, they will deliver him to death to the Gentiles to mock him. Remember, Jesus was mocked. Remember, even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. And he washed his hands as if he were now guiltless of the death of Jesus Christ. And, and the Jewish leaders said, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children's children. You see, they were so religious, they couldn't even see their own scriptures. Because the Bible promised in Isaiah 53 that he would be rejected of men. He would be whipped and scourged. And it would be by his stripes that we would even experience healing in our life. So you see, the scripture is very clear. Is there proof? Of course there is. There's proof that, uh, for example, if we're taking and examining the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ based on how we determine truth in history, then the resurrection is one of the greatest historical facts known to man. You see, what historians do, they'll take the number of documents that are out there, they'll find the number of errors in that, and they come up with a formula of the likelihood that person actually did what he said he did and existed. So if you go back and you look at something like uh, Napoleon, how many of you believe there was a Napoleon? I do. You know, the, the, the emperor of France who had great exploits. He wrote a lot about himself. He was much, very much an egomaniac. Other people wrote about him. Other people said things about him. It was, he's well-attested in history. And yet when you, you take his life and all the historical writings of it, there's less than a 30% chance that there was even a Napoleon. Because there's so much contradiction in that. Well, what about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Not the whole life of Jesus, just the resurrection. You see, the only thing that was written, I mean, not the only thing that was written was the Bible. The Bible, of course, is one uh, source of, of information. But Josephus, the Jewish historian, he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many others wrote about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you take all the historical records, including the Bible, And then you go through that same formula, you have a 90 plus chance that Jesus Christ was alive, died, and rose from the dead based on just history. Just history. And I think, yeah, put your hands together, amen. Now I will say, we don't need history to prove the resurrection. But isn't it nice to know that the faith you have is not a blind faith? People say, well, don't you think Christianity is blind faith? No, that's a phrase that comes from Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was this philosopher who said, you know, it's just a leap in the dark of blind faith. Well, I don't have blind faith. I have a well-attested document from antiquity called the Bible. And guess what? It's very unique among all the writings. You won't find this in the writings of the Muslims. You won't find this in the Hindis or anybody else. But there's one interesting thing that sets it apart. You know what it is? It is predictive, prophetic words. In other words, God wrote about things in 700 BC that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. More than 300 different uh, prophecies about Jesus, nearly half of those were fulfilled in his first coming. What's the likelihood of that? Well, it's astronomical, you can imagine. One of the proofs is the, the body. Where is the body? And that was every, all of Jerusalem was circling about trying to figure out where is Jesus And so we find that the women said that the tomb was empty. Well, we also know that the angel, when they went there, said it was empty. The soldiers said it was empty. Now, these are Roman soldiers. These are the trained green beret of their day, if you will. To leave their post, the penalty was death. They were so frightened that they left their post and went reported that he's gone. They were shaking in their boots, so to speak, they said it was empty. The disciples came back and they reported he's not there. The guard said it's empty. The Jewish priest said it was empty. Well, what happened to the body? If the Romans had stolen it, the Jews had stolen it, couldn't they just produce the body and kill Christianity in an instant? You see, changed Lives points to this fact that we have been had an encounter with God that God did exactly what he said he would do. Thomas Arnold of Oxford University said this, I've been used of many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who've written about them. And I know of no other fact in uh, history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. You know, I can only imagine that a guy named Thomas Arnold at Oxford was a pretty smart guy. Well, how about Paul Mayer, professor of ancient history, Western Michigan University, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was empty on the morning of the first Easter, and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered that would disprove that statement. Dr. Norman Anderson, think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards, Cowering in the upper room of one day or and a few days later, transformed into a company that no persecution could silence. Remember, when, when he was crucified, everybody was finding you know, some place to hide, these disciples, and yet they were transformed on his resurrection. And then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication that simply would not make sense. Why, Dr. Ming Wang of Harvard and MIT, magna cum laude, Harvard, I might add, pretty smart guy, he said, I came to know Jesus Christ because I did not find in science the answers to life's questions for which I was searching. The more I learned about science, the more not less evidence that I saw God's creation and his design. You know what coming to know Christ means? In in many things, in, in addition to life, it means purpose. Story is told, of a 25-year-old woman in Biloxi, Mississippi, who had come to the end of her life. Despair, discouraged, defeat, she decided she was gonna take her own life. She made her way up on a tall bridge and decided to jump into the water. There was a man watching from from the banks. He saw her jump in, and he jumped in to save her. In his excitement to save her, he simply forgot he did not know how to swim. He was thrashing about and drowning, and the woman, actually saved his life and took him to shore. (coughs) You see, it wasn't the man who saved her. It was purpose that saved her. She found purpose in her life. You see, if you're just a a creature of evolution, what really is your purpose? There's nothing beyond the grave. There is no fulfillment of loving a God and, and serving God. People say, well, you know, What if you're wrong? Okay, well, let's suppose there is no God. Let's suppose I'm wrong. Here's what the penalty has been for me. I've had a standard to live by. I've lived with hope, right? I've had values that I can bring into my family, into my house, into my community, right? But what if you're wrong? If you're wrong and there is a God and you stand before that God on the judgment day, he's not letting you into heaven. It's cost you your very soul. So whether you, whether you believe or don't believe, you have to at least be an honest doubter, right? You have to at least say, well, I'm gonna be honest and say, I doubt and I have reasons. And I, think, I think if we investigate and go deeper into it, we'll find that more and more people who investigate or try to disprove Christianity become Christians. In John chapter 11, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Just think of that statement. Who is he? I am. I am the resurrection, and the life. Notice that present tense, I am. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, we're born twice, we can be born twice, so I'm born when I'm born, and then I'm born again. That seemed confusing to a guy named Nicodemus. He asked Jesus, how can I be born again? Can I go back in my mother's womb? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand? That unless you're born of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. But there's also two deaths. There's a physical death, but there's also a spiritual death, and that separates us from God. Well, how do I commit that spiritual death? Well, you already have. Have you ever sinned? I'll say that to people. They go, well, I'm not a sinner. I say, have you ever lied? Well, yeah, well, that's a sin right? Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. By the time you read them, you've already broken them. Amen? See, the Ten Commandments were never meant to get you into heaven. They were meant to be a mirror that you looked into and said, yep, I think I need God. That's what they were for. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 24 and through 26, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A Couple of things Jesus said, that following Christ is not easy, it's difficult. It's difficult to stand in the marketplace, it's difficult to stand in school, it's difficult to stand at your work, in your community and com- confess that you are a Christian. But you know what Jesus said? If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. You see, he expects something out of us, and so he should. If he's gonna rescue you from from sin and death and the grave and give you a place in heaven, don't you think he wants a good representative here on earth, amen? And he says, what will you give in exchange for your soul? What would you say on earth, what would be the blessing, the riches, The opportunity, the position, the power that someone would give you on earth, and you'd say, I'll give that up for my soul. What would it be? You know, Mick Jagger did that years ago. He said, you know, if you'll make me the greatest rock and roll musician, I'll give my soul. I'll sell my soul to the devil. He even wrote a song about it. What would you sell your soul for? What would you give up? I don't think there's anything worth giving up, do you? You know, the amazing thing about God is he has an amazing way of sneaking into your life. I like to call him Jehovah Sneaky. You know, I wasn't looking for God when I began to read a book about the return of Christ. I just thought I was curious. And then I bought a Bible, I started reading that Bible, and I wasn't looking for God. I just was curious. And next thing I know, I find myself believing in God. I go, this is amazing. Reading the Bible is amazing because it's the Word of God and it just brings life to us. So how do I become a Christian? I grew up in the church. In fact, I used to light the candles in the church. I'd go down in the morning with my buddy Jim and we'd light the candles and had our robes on and we'd sneak down the basement and smoke cigarettes. Never was very good at smoking cigarettes. But it seemed like the right thing to do. Then the organ would begin to play and we'd put the robe on and back up we'd go to put out the candles. I was pretty religious, but I was pretty lost, right? Not because of cigarettes, because I didn't know God. And you see, how do I get to know God? You know, have you ever picked up a Bible? I mean, it's big, isn't it? You notice how thick it is? They use those really thin pages to trick you. If they used regular paper, it'd be like a foot deep. But how do I take all of that and bring it to a place of just simple faith in God? I think there's a simple prayer. Here's what Jesus said in Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. The apostle Paul wrote it down. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, here's the promise, you ready? You will be saved. There's a promise. So I put into a paragraph a prayer that you could pray today and it, it, it's your faith, not my words, it's your faith in God that can bring you to the point of salvation. So I'm gonna ask you to stand with me right now. I'm gonna ask you to repeat this prayer out loud, praying that Jesus would save you today, come into your heart, give you the gift of eternal life. It goes like this, just repeat after me. I admit that I am a sinner, and I understand that my sin separates me from you. I believe that Jesus, being God, paid the penalty for my sins when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. I want to place my trust in him as my Savior. Thank you for loving and forgiving me and giving me the gift of eternal life. Now, I want you just right now in your own words just to bow your head and just thank him. If that was your prayer, this was your, the first time you've ever prayed this prayer or the first time you've ever met it, I prayed that prayer, Pastor, and you just want to thank God in your own words. You might say something like this, God, thank you for saving me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing me you today. Now, if that was your prayer, just lift your hands up, would you? Just say, I, Pastor, I prayed that prayer all over this place, amen. Just lift them up. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.